Welcome to The Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of The Sendcast. We started this podcast a few years ago to help improve knowledge around SEMD. There is lots of stuff you can go and read, but we're all very busy. The phrase, every teacher is a teacher of SEN, is currently an ideal, not a reality. We created The Sendcast to try and help solve that problem, to help make schools more inclusive and to help teachers be teachers of SEM. The Sendcast is also a great way to get the same consistent message to schools and parents. Every week on the Sendcast, I have a different guest that has come on to talk about a topic they are passionate about. This week, we're discussing what on earth is pathological demand avoidance or PDA. My guest this week is Rachel Jackson. Rachel is an author and parent of two boys, one with a diagnosis of autism and ADHD. Now, before we get started, I'd like you to remind you about us here at B-Squared. Over the last 25 years, we have supported schools to support students with SEM. Our assessment products are used in over 10,000 schools around the world to help show small steps of progress, with around 1,500 using Connecting Steps, our assessment software. Our evidence system, EverSense, helps schools capture and share the achievements their pupils are making. And our online CPD platform, Training for Education, started three years ago with a virtual SEND conference, now includes a range of training courses as well as our conferences. If you want to find out more about B-Squared and how we can help your school, go to our website, which is www.bsquared.co.uk. There is lots of information available and you can book an online meeting to find out how we can support you. Or you can drop an email to me. My email address is simply dale at bsquared.co.uk. Let's get on with the podcast. In this week's show, we're discussing what on earth is PDA? Joining me today is Rachel Jackson. Rachel is a parent of two boys, one with a diagnosis of autism and ADHD. She is an author, writing three short books for children around autism and their siblings. And she's also written for a number of magazines. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. You are welcome. So lots of people have probably heard of PDA, may not know what it actually is. So let's start with a nice simple question. What on earth is PDA? Well, it's a brilliant place to start because I had no idea what PDA was a short while ago, probably a couple of years ago. PDA is thought of as a profile on the autism spectrum. So by that, I mean it's part of the broad range of symptoms that you may see, but it's a certain pattern. And one of the difficulties with PDA is that the certain pattern that you see in PDA, which is pathological demand avoidance, often is at odds with what you would expect to see in a typical autism presentation. So PDA will share some of the communication and social difficulties with autism. Yep. It will share some of the restrictive, repetitive patterns of behavior. It'll share some of the sensory differences that you see with autism. But what you tend to see in PDA that you wouldn't necessarily recognize from a, an, a typical autism presentation is a, degree, a much higher degree of resisting ordinary day-to-day -day demands. So things that you would normally expect to say to a child, like put your shoes on, from a PDA perspective, the very act of asking a child to put their shoes on creates a degree of anxiety that almost shuts down the, the functioning part of their brain that wants to put their shoes on. So they resist. 
but the way in which they resist can sometimes be very verbally clever. And one of the things you'll see with PDA kids that means they often have other professionals saying, oh, well, I don't even think they're autistic. They will look you in the eye. They will use humor. They will be generally quite verbally able and able to the point of being able to manipulate you relatively easily and very creative. There's a lot more imaginative, creative activity than you would traditionally see. I'm not Obviously, if you meet one autistic person, you meet one autistic person, the spectrum's so broad. But pathological demand avoidance is a pattern that looks different. And, and that's really where it came from in its inception, that there was a recognition that there was a bunch of kids who didn't behave like typical autistic kids. So you mentioned sort of, you may ask them to put their shoes on and they would refuse. What sort of way would they refuse? You said verbally. Oh, so it's not, phys- it's not physical. It's not a... No, it's not. It, well, it may well be physical as well, but depending on what level of cognitive demand they've got at the time as to how much verbal capability they've got. But it's almost as if they want to put their shoes on. They know they need shoes. They want to put their shoes on. But the act of you asking them to put their shoes on shuts down their brains so that they will come up with a reason why they can't put their shoes on. So that may well be, I can't tie the shoelaces, or my feet hurt, or I can't wear those shoes, or something quite creative. Now, one of the major difficulties I've found over the years in explaining PDA to people is the vast majority of people say, yeah, my kids do that as well. That's that's the same as all other kids. And you're like, yeah, but it looks a bit different when you see it with a kid with PDA. (laughs) That's that's one of the things I was sitting there going, I don't want to say lots of children don't because that's the worst thing you say. And I know, going, do not say it, do not say that. (laughs) But in some ways, it 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 does sound in a very simple, low level way. Children avoid doing things, tidy a room. Oh, I'm doing this, but it is a different thing, and it is combined with the other aspects of autism as well. Yeah, yeah, and I think the way that, and if you look online, you find the. There's a brilliant organization called the PDA Society. And one of the things that they they talk about is that the, the demand resistance in PDA is driven by an anxiety-based need for control. So it's not, I don't want to put my shoes on. It's, I need to know that I am safe, that I am okay in the world. And my way of doing that is to not put my shoes on so that I can I can manipulate the world and feel like I'm in control of it in some way. And the anxiety caused in that space is visible. I'm, I can see my son unable to think clearly. It's like, he, it's like he's in a state of chaos. There's, one of the ways I describe it is it's almost like claustrophobia. So if you put somebody with claustrophobia in a small space, you can see their whole body tense. He's like that. If I ask him to do something, and sometimes he's pretty verbally capable, and he will say, if you keep asking me these things, I can't think, I can't think, stop asking me things. If you stop asking me, I'll do it. And as a parent, you're just like, okay, fair enough, back off. You're trying to be helpful. You're trying you're to trying do to be helpful. If you try and add any kind of useful instructions in there, his brain gets even more scrambled, and he's even more incapable of doing it. So I was about to ask, is if he's partway through putting his shoes on and you notice, or you haven't done that, and you he could be doing it, but the moment you say that, that will stop him? Yeah, he'll he'll lose. It's almost like he he's now focused on resistant yep. rather than shoes. And I heard a wonderful story when I was first exploring PDA of, of a boy who was throwing a bone, for, throwing a stick for a dog. And he was quite okay throwing the stick for the dog while the dog wasn't that interested. 
But once the dog started getting really interesting and actually physically begging for the stick, the boy found he couldn't actually throw it anymore because the demand of the dog wanting the stick to be thrown created anxiety about the act of throwing the stick. So he couldn't do it. And he physically couldn't bring himself to do it. Wow. Now, I can see your face and my face was the same going, this doesn't make any sense. That's, a, that's the thing is, is I partly, you, I partly see of it. I, I always think of it as Charles point of view is I don't like someone, an older person. I can do this. I'm doing this my way. I don't need you as an adult to tell me I was thinking that, but yeah. as soon as you're saying a dog <laughs> demanding a stick puts the same kind yeah. of level of anxiety on that's a very different thing so it's not it's an adult telling me it's anything telling me and it's even more than an external demand it's equally an internal demand and a lot of people with a a much more pronounced pda than my son shows talk about if they want to do something if they if the demand comes from the inside for example a need to go to the loo or a need to eat or a need to brush my teeth that can create the same degree of anxiety. And the only place we see this in my son, and we've seen it since he was very small, is that his behavior will go off the charts in terms of his acting out and behavioral symptoms when he needs to go to the loo, but he doesn't want to go to the loo. And he he will actually stop himself from going to the loo until the very last minute. But that last 20 minutes or so is flooded with anxiety-ridden behaviors. And then you'll say, Leo, do you need to go to the loo? And he's like, yes. And he'll run to the toilet, go to the loo and come back and be a completely different boy. So internal, interreception-based demands are the same. He's the same when he's cold and doesn't want to put a jumper on. He's the same when he's hungry but doesn't want to eat. It's, it's really odd. So it's a case of it's not he's not sensing them, he's completely sensing them, but that is not a conscious decision of I want to go and have lunch because it's it's because I'm feeling hungry. Well, no, you're not, you're not telling me what to do. You're not taking my consciousness. My body is not going to demand. <laughs> yes, that, that's like, okay. It's really mad to get your head around. And, and well, one I, of the I difficulties. Find that fascinating. I find yeah. it fascinating because you do sit there. And the thing I find about special needs is so many people assume, well, I do this, so you do too. And I can do this, so you can do this. And if you can do this, you must be able to do this. Yeah. And it's fascinating just exploring how different each person is. Yeah. And I always find the more I learn, the more I become a lot more accepting of people's differences. I don't, as soon as something happens, I go, I don't go, that's a bit weird. I go, Ooh, why are you doing it? I start asking, yeah. why are you doing that? Yeah. Well, that's, that's my background as well. And one of the reasons I ended up doing the, the books and things like that. My, my degree is in psychology. And awkwardly enough, I studied autism. I did my dissertation on autism, almost like I was preparing. But ever since then, we have bookloads of stuff on various different elements of autism and PDA and, and ADHD now starting to enter into that mix. But it's, it's still difficult to get your head around. I've literally this morning been trying to get my head around the fact that we have a list, we have a tick list for my son, because what we've learned is if the demand comes from me, like you need to turn the internet off, you need to come off your game, now you need to brush your teeth, it it just backfires. It's just not even worth doing. It will put him on the back foot and he will literally re- regress from what he was doing. And just to be clear, so, that's not a normal child resisting. This is a very different this is, thing. This is a different sense of resisting. If I put a tick list in front of him, 
that just has a list of jobs on it and say, have you looked at your list? He will literally work through the list quite happily. No issues whatsoever because it's outside. Yeah, because he's in control and he loves it. But that said, he won't work through the list in a logical order. And I was talking to him this morning. He cleaned his teeth before he ate his breakfast this morning. Apparently, I was reading an article, that's what you should do. Well, there we go. Maybe he's read that same article. Apparently, it makes no sense to me because I want to have my breakfast and then have clean teeth afterwards. Apparently, your placards are the weakest. Brushing them makes it stronger. I don't need to have... Apparently. There you go. So he's obviously got inside information on that one. But the thing that's really interesting is that he will not work through a sequence of tasks in any kind of logical order, particularly if he's being watched or being encouraged. So getting dressed is is a ridiculous task of random things happening in between socks. So one sock on, and then I'll go and clean my teeth. And then I might come back and put another sock on, or I might not. But the moment you say, why don't you put both socks on? Then he's like, because I, I don't want to. I'll do it in my own time. And, and, and it just blocks any kind of function. Now, wow. yes, you see that in normal kids, and I'm sure you see it in autistic kids. There's just... There's a, and it's one of the hardest things when people say, I don't believe in PDA. I don't believe it exists. And there is a huge research base around it that says, is it part of autism? Is it a thing on its own? Or actually, is it just anxiety? And if you treated the anxiety, would all the symptoms of PDA go away? And that's still a question that's up in the air. At, at the, it's not on the DSM. It, it's not recognized. No. So one of the things I find with my children when they do resist and they're doing not to this level, there's generally something I can do, a trick that makes them snap out of it. Yeah. I.e. they don't want to put their shoes on because they were having lots of fun outside and we're now going out and they don't want to. And I'll say something and suddenly they'll put their shoes on and off they go. It changes. Yeah. So, but, and that's the thing for a lot of children who may be displaying this or the parents go, oh yeah, my children do that. It is. If you can just say one thing and they snap out of it because they realize actually there is something I want, yeah. that's not PDA. That is a, I'm just deflecting this. I'm just. Don't really can't be bothered to do it right now. Yeah. I'm making my point that I don't want to do this. But then as soon as you make me want to do it, I'll do it. Yeah. Very different. Well, funnily enough, some of the same tricks work even with PDA. Ooh. So there are, there are, there's advice that comes out of the PDA Society about how to handle a child with PDA. And there's all kinds of things around flexibility and planning ahead and making sure that you pick your battles and don't fight all of them at once. But equally, there's some stuff about disguising demands. So just using different language. So we have a lot more success saying, I think I'm going to put my coat on because it's a bit cold outside, which isn't a demand at all. It's got nothing demanding in it at all, but it's a, a shared piece of information that says, oh, maybe you should put yours on. But if you say you should put yours on, he won't do it. Okay. What? Well, I, I have a question. So again, I, I, I have to go with my experience. If I say to my child, it's time for your shower or it's time for you to do this, I get resistance. Yeah. And what I found is the easiest way is I ask them what they've got to do. They tell me, well, you need to have a shower. When are you going to have it? They tell me. And when I remind them, they kind of go, oh, I've said I've had a shower now. And the resistance goes. So me giving them that choice gives them the control. Yeah. It means when I ask them, you said now, they do it. But 
if you had that sort of conversation with a child of PDA, he gave them a choice that may work. But yeah. if you then reminded them at that time, it's completely damaged it's, back to where it was. It can, it can, it can back you off. Now, it's really difficult to talk about this in the sense that I have friends of mine whose children have PDA in big capital letters in black marker pen, and and they are continually at the will of their children. I'm fortunate in that Leo he shows PDA type behaviours. I'm not sure that if we pushed him through the full diagnosis of PDA, he would reach that level. So in terms of the examples that I see, they're not as strong. But what we do find is that dealing with him almost on an adult to adult basis so that you're negotiating and discussing and exploring works an awful lot better. And and one of the things that you'll see in PDA that you wouldn't see in kids who are naturally resistant is that as the anxiety level goes up, whether that's time, whether that's task, whether that's confusion, the behaviors that you get can become extreme to the point where PDA kids are renowned for shocking behaviors. And by shocking, I don't mean, oh, they're really bad. I mean shocking in the sense that they're deliberately setting out to shock. So they will do something to deflect you from what you're trying to make them do. And that might be swearing, it might be hitting something, it might be throwing something, it might be utterly embarrassing behaviors that they really don't care whether they are embarrassing in public. Now, is that is that behavior, so you and your partner, would he display slightly different behavior in those situations based on what ticks your bot hits your nerves, if you know what I mean? Yes, um, particularly with my husband. Um, I, and I think lots of people I talk to with PDA, the husbands are either very low profile or have left because they can't handle the behaviors because they are normally socially shocking. So they're really embarrassing. Leo will shout. He will swear at my husband in public. He will do stuff like kicking walls or, or bashing people as he walks past them that are embarrassing. And he, it's almost like he does that because he needs to know that he has control over the situation. He needs to know that he can trigger my husband's response. He does the same with me, but if I don't respond particularly, he will stop doing them relatively reasonably. But it's, it's much more extreme than you would expect from an, an, a neurotypical child. Okay, because I did a podcast a while ago with Dr. Jamie Galkin and Claire Waters about certainty and uncertainty. Yeah. And you can imagine in those situations where they're uncomfortable, but they know if they do this, dad will shout at them. That's a certain element of certainty. That's certainty, yeah. But actually what you were saying by you not reacting, oh, actually, that's not, that's, it doesn't fit into that kind of logic. No, no. So that and, doesn't, I was like, eh, oh, no. <laughs> and Yeah, but sometimes, the, sometimes what happens in that space is that his anxiety goes up because I haven't reacted. And what he does is then pushes further. He pushes more buttons in a different way. It's, it's like that one didn't work. I'll try a different button. And even when he was five or six years old, we would regularly say it's almost like he is determined to create the worst case scenario outcome because then he knows that it's happened and he knows that he's okay because it's already happened and he created it. And you'd be like, why do you keep on pushing that same button over and over and over again? And it's and and sometimes he will get to a point where he is in tears but feels better because now it's all clear 
It's wow. it's very strange. And and one of the things that I find really really fascinating about his presentation is that he is at his worst in behavioural terms when he doesn't feel connected to somebody around him. And I suspect that's the same for all kids. But he will push that connection to the point where it breaks just to know that it's there. So you get your worst behaviours from him when you're distracted. And and I suppose that's the same with with all kids. I think it's just how far he pushes it that that is amazing. He will he will literally attack other kids around him just to get that response. And I suppose people will say, oh, yeah, if, if you put them on an iPad, they'll do something naughty and they're just looking for some attention, negative or positive mm. attention, attention. That's what they crave. But this is a much bigger thing. It's a much bigger scale. It feels that way. It's it's more intense. It's more frequent. The mood swings that he goes through are much more intense. The behaviours that he demonstrates are much more intense. The resistance to doing things are much more intense. Um, and and we talk about it's not that he won't do something. It's that he's shut down to a point where he can't do it. Yeah. So actually, you kind of have to recreate calm for his his brain to start being able to process the the thing that he needs to do. Yeah. It's just it's shut down to the point where it's not it's not I won't do something because I don't want to. It's I physically can't do it anymore because I'm my anxiety is such that I can't think straight. And then you've then got to be a, I think um yeah, to Jasmine talk about arousal and bringing that arousal yeah. level down. Absolutely. Bringing it down. Don't ask them questions. Don't ask you got to leave them alone. And they, I suppose you've got to help them find out what is low arousal. Yeah. Is, is it silence or is it white noise type stuff? Or is, or, it, or is it quite bizarrely in my son's case? Because um, obviously PDA is also linked in with the sensory stuff. Two people talking, absolutely fine. Three people talking, slightly more complicated, can't follow all parts of that conversation, causes him anxiety. So sitting around the dinner table with four of us, often a trigger for anxiety. He can't work out the movement between people, it, the, the, the flow between people. Stick him in a rave with loud music and loads of people talking, totally relaxed, totally calm, totally relaxed. You'd never guess he was autistic in any way, shape or form. Wow. Loud rave music. My, my, my nephew, he's on the spectrum and there were things he could not handle at school and they said it was sensory based. He can't handle loud noises. But the weekend he was at Manchester Airport with the big planes going over his head. Not sensory, nope. more uh, choice and other anxiety building up and other things which have a big impact on can he cope. Yeah. And I suppose in a rave, you're not having to follow the conversations. You've got music no. which you are listening to, so there's no expectations on him to be able to follow because so the anxiety is there. But when there's three or four people in a conversation and you're trying to work out the rules, why did he just say that yeah. when it wasn't his turn? It's much just more trying complicated. To work out the rules. Yeah, trying to follow that, that's a lot of work. Yeah, so we often see absolute calm in situations that you wouldn't expect absolute calm and absolute freak out in situations where you'd expect it to be absolutely fine. Wow. So, so what was he like in school? Because literally school is the world of being told what to do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, he, got, he got kicked out of preschool, if that helps. <laughs> he basically... Um, he overwhelmed. He basically overwhelmed himself. I think he he they they got very hot. They ended up throwing books around and thinking that was hilarious. There was him and another kid, um, and they ended up biting various people. And he got excluded from preschool. He then went to the primary school attached to the preschool and was known as the kid who bites people, which wasn't the best of starts. 
um, but he would he found it I think probably the ADHD was was there and we didn't realize at the time um, he found it quite difficult to stay still and sit in lessons and those kinds of things but more importantly he would do those shock behaviors and he would push the teacher to a point where that he disrupted the entire class in an effort to get the teacher to focus on on giving him certainty um, and he Notably, I think his final word in his primary school um, was kneeing his headmaster where he shouldn't, which tended to end his um, his career in primary school. And he then ended up in a PRU, a pupil referral unit, because the headmaster's face, I, I don't think I've ever seen a headmaster's face change quite so quickly when he kicked him where he shouldn't. Anyway, he then spent two years in a pupil referral unit, which should have been a three-month placement. Suffolk doesn't have much in the way of school um, for children who, this is the other thing that's different with PDA, is they're, they're often not um, suffering from any kind of learning delays. There can sometimes be a speech delay early on, but then it comes, it picks up and it, it accelerates really quickly. But in terms of academic capability, it's all there. It's just blocked by the inability to engage with the rules. Yeah. So if he's teaching, we had great fun at homeschool because he did some lessons for his other classmates and he's brilliant at it. Absolutely brilliant. He's patient. He explains everything. He's really good. Put him on the other end of that and he'll ask 30,000 questions before you've even got your first sentence out and then decided he disagrees with you. So it's quite disruptive to other kids learning. And what we found was the reason he was getting excluded is other parents were complaining about the the impact he was having on the class. Yeah. So he's now in a... Um, a specialist school that folk, that you have to have an autistic diagnosis and most of the kids I suspect are on a PDA profile. So they're used to that. Yeah, I, th I think then, I think nationally there is a lack of provision for, I'm going to say, um, but more able children. Yeah, academically capable, but with behavioural issues. Behavioural issues or socially, yeah. Yeah, behavioural issues. There's quite a lot of provision for kids with behavioural issues. But those behavioural issues are often rooted in experiences of abuse or experiences of neglect and those kinds of things. If they've got behavioural issues, we've got a school near us that's brilliant for autism, but it takes what I call the quiet and retiring autism, the no trouble autism. And my son is never going to be that. He would walk up to bunches of teenagers when he was like four and say, hello, can I play with you? And you could see the teenager's face thinking, who is this? He's just bold. He's in your face. And he's been like it since he was really small. So therefore, he, the, uh, and that's thing. So I, my, 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 my nephew is one of those quiet ones who would do really well in that school, but it's yeah, a long brilliant. way from where he is. Um, but he is very clever. Um, G, he should get GCSEs, but a lot of the provision that's offered is functional skills or entry yeah. levels or things yeah. like that. And it's just like, no. No, There's a big no, gap in no. the market for there is. And to be fair, when you when you think what that gap in the market contains, um, my son is in a school with five other pupils in his class. They have a teacher and two TAs, but they're managing kids who it's a bit like herding cats, but really aggressive cats. Um, if you if you take a, a wrong step somewhere, they spend a lot of time trying to separate two kids who have disagreed about the rules on something. Um they both want to be in control. Neither of them can back down. So they end up with a fist fight in the classroom. Now, there aren't many teachers. I, I think my um, the teacher at the moment is ex-police. 
Um, and the other thing that's really weird is in those schools, the TAs that you get, you'd think they were the TAs that have worked through mainstream and have loads of experience. They're not. They're the freshly qualified TAs. So they go into a school like that, cut their teeth, and then go and work in a mainstream school. So they're constantly having a churn of TAs because they're A, they can't cope, and B, they've got other jobs that they could go to. Yes. So the kids that most need stability have got Don't get a stability. constant changing circumstance. Yes. Yes. That's a whole other podcast. Absolutely. The schooling system. Yes. But yeah, so yeah, I wasn't expecting the preschool comment. I wasn't expecting the <laughs> uh, head teacher part. Yeah. Um, I was expecting difficulty without a doubt because, yeah, sec- primary school, secondary, all of them, it is about being told what to do and um, conforming. And I did a whole podcast with Pinto and Regan about should we conform or not. But you have to do your maths a certain way. You have to mm. do things a certain way. Where would you, have you to just- say that? Leo does all of his maths verbally. He hasn't written anything in maths for ages. They sometimes manage to get him down, sitting down on a good day, but the vast majority of the stuff he does whilst reading a Beano comic, and they will talk to him, and they will throw out a question, and he'll answer it whilst reading a Beano comic. Love it. Because his brain it. is distracted from the demand. So yeah. you can fire the demand in sideways. It gets underneath the desperate Dan conversation he's having in his head, and he just spurts the answer out. Distracted learning. And uh, some teachers who aren't hugely SE anyway, well, he should have put the comic down. Because if he'd put that down and actually looked at me and paid attention, he would have got that answer even No, he wouldn't. He wouldn't have done anything. They do quite a lot of their lessons in trees out in the back field. So they'll be swinging around in the branches of a tree and they'll just ask questions about history. Oh, do you remember this person? We talked about that. Yay. And they'll have a big conversation whilst they're all swinging around in a tree. Which to me is what school ought to be in some ways. I think is if if you're discussing, if you're learning, if you're giving the answers, you're doing it. If your way is slightly different, it doesn't matter. If you're getting, yeah, I, I have lots of issues around doing things certain ways. I, I know lots of parents when they try and help their children do their maths homework and get told they're doing it wrong. Yeah. You're going, but I got the right answer, but you're doing it the wrong way. That's not the way <laughs> we're taught it. Well, um, yeah, that's just the tip of the iceberg. In the PDA community, I would have said there's a there's a guy that I spoke to about PDA right in the early days called Harry Thompson, and he wrote a book called the um, God. I've lost the name of it. it it'll come to me. Um, but he he's one of the one of the leading talkers around um, PDA because he has a PDA profile himself, and. He said that he went to school and he hated school and he hated all the elements of school. He loved the social element, but he hated all the lesson side of it. And essentially, the only point at which he felt comfortable was not homeschooling, because homeschooling was a replication of what was trying to happen at school. But a lot of PDA parents talk about unschooling and actually allowing your child to decide what they want to learn and when they want to learn it. And it's a terrifying process initially because they don't they sit and play playstation but then they get bored and they start being interested in something and they start teaching themselves and as a parent what you do is step back and allow that to happen and a lot of pda parents live in that space where they they are child led absolutely yeah there's a big difference learning because you have to learning because it's on a curriculum learning yeah. because that's what every child at your age learns this week and learning because you're interested or you actually have a reason you want to learn. Yeah. 
very different, very different outcomes. Um, and it is when we, we, when we do things as adults, you're choosing to do it. So you, you said you did a PhD and you chose to do that. You dove in, it was child, it was child led, it was person led. Yeah. And that's the thing is when it is child led, when it is person led, you will go insanely into that. You will go a very mm. long way because you're interested and you will learn lots of stuff, which will keep you going and give you lots of different segues into different things. Yeah. Cause you read that and you go, well, what is that? And you go off that way then go, wow, actually I need to get back on track and go off again. And it is fascinating. And the ability to learn and the ability to learn in school is two very different things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Because when you're, when you're self-taught, you follow your own fascination and you become self-regulating. And one of the biggest things about PDA is this sense of, of struggling to self-regulate. It's struggling to overcome that sense of anxiety it's struggling to stay on track it's struggling to um, maintain some sense of control it's struggling not to be overwhelmed and actually if you're put in charge of that struggling you find solutions you find strategies and Leo now has all kinds of strategies that he will he's learning at school because they're supporting him at school but equally he'll say I need to go upstairs we've got a bearded dragon that lives underneath his bed in a tank and if he's really stressed downstairs, he'll say, I'm going to go and play with Stormfly. And you'll find him. He's gone upstairs. He's taken Stormfly out. He's sitting having a cuddle with her. He's just breathing. And then he'll put her away and come downstairs and he's fine. He's calmed himself. And um, it, that's, that's what you can hope for for a child, that they find their own ways of regulating their emotional state. But with PDA, you can't do it for them. And that's the hardest part about parenting, that when he is in a state of anxiety, sometimes I am the worst person to be there because I'm trying to help and I'm trying to calm him and I'm trying to comfort him and I'm trying to give him strategies. And actually everything I say increases the anxiety. I suppose in that situation where he's at home, he realizes he knows that is because he was in control of that situation. He could just go up. Mm. If he felt like that in school, yeah, he's not in quarantine. So he can't just go off because someone else is in control. Absolutely. And in mainstream school, that's impossible for him to manage. So he will literally make more and more and more psychological and behavioral noise until he is allowed out. But Believe he may not even not, ask to go out. No, not necessarily. Although at his, at his first primary school, he used to ask if he could go out and run around in the field. And they said no, because he'd need two people to supervise him. So there were just so many blockages in the system. Whereas now they... They regularly have behavior, they have movement breaks during the day. And if he says to them, I don't think I can handle the cookery lesson today because the smells in there are really strong and I don't want to upset my friends by making too much noise because I'm anxious. Can we go outside instead? Then they'll say, yes, that's brilliant. Well done for noticing that about yourself. Well done for knowing what you need. Let's go and do it. So we're very fortunate that he's in that space. But from a parenting perspective, there's this constant inner conflict between, isn't it amazing that my son has that capacity? And, oh, my God, how's he going to manage in the real world when he's not given that capacity? And you're constantly in this space of, um, am I ill preparing him for his future where there will be regulations? There's not, there's nowhere near as many regulations in life as there are in school. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Is in school, it is all about conformity. And if you just think of 
the millions of jobs out there, the million <laughs> places you can live, the million types of places, the yeah. type of ways you can interaction. Um, you can, and there's lots of people I know, uh, my colleague John um, classes himself not far as a hermit. He'll do everything <laughs> online, won't get anything, doesn't like talking to people um, just because for whatever reason. But he's a lovely person. But he, he, he just likes to control and decide when I want to talk to people, I'll talk to people. And he yeah. loves it and he's very sociable. There are times he just doesn't. Yeah. And he can just go, yeah, I'm not going to talk to people. And he's got that choice. But when you're in a school, no, no, you will be in that class with yeah. these people. You will be doing cooking next. Why? Because that's what's on the schedule. But I don't like that food. You get all those choices you have. You don't like cooking smelly food with this in. No. So you'll never cook that again in your life because you hate it. Mm. So there are, I feel there are so many choices um, you can do. There's lots of different ways of working, especially with COVID, that all these people can work yeah. from home. So now, especially if I, I, I'm into IT, and when I, when I researched remote working a year before COVID, I was um, reading, uh, watching videos of a bloke who was currently in Mexico and had been there for three months, and he was a developer. So yeah. he'd do his eight hours work a day. Sometimes he would get his 40-odd hours done in four days. We could have a long weekend going somewhere in Mexico, and he goes, in, uh, next week I'm off to Spain for three months. Yeah. So he didn't have it. He travelled the world and remote work. So he was very much in control of when he worked, how he worked, everything. So, yeah, I do feel in lots of ways the adult world is great, but there are going to be times when you get into the world of hospitals and legal and police that you do have to perform. I think that is a very big challenge, especially when you get into the health world where my nephew has anxiety and he's in year eight. He wants to be a microbiologist. He knows everything about the vaccine. He knows he needs to have the vaccine, but he can't have the vaccine. He's got there. They've got to point the needle. He just can't do it. Yeah. So there are times like that where I think PDA and autism is still going to be a very huge barrier. Yeah. And it's it's really interesting that, that, that you kind of explore that thing about the guy in Mexico. We are, as a family, in a state at the moment where I'm self-employed, my husband's self-employed, We've got one child in mainstream and one child out of mainstream. Um, and we've got COVID and we've got all of us love traveling. And it's one of the things that's really bizarre about Leo that you can stick him on an airplane and take him on a tour of Thailand, staying three nights in one place and two nights in another place. And he's absolutely fine. Whereas if you if you did that with an, a, a typical autism, you'd be stuck with the whole routine thing. He doesn't yeah. give a damn about routine as long as he's got some control. So we've got that flexibility. But when we all get to that point where we're like, none of us are mainstream, none of our family is mainstream, we're, we're, we're constantly reinventing the wheel and heading off in different directions. But my, son is in, my youngest son is in the sausage machine that will produce GCSEs and the guy who doesn't know whether he wants to be a businessman or a lawyer. So there's a, there's a pain of watching that happen because I suspect he isn't mainstream either. But my eldest son, if we were to take him out of the system, we would lose local authority funding. We would lose his school place and all the battle for the EHCP that we've gone through. And that's our major blocker from going, do you know what? Sod all of this. Let's go and be creative, random people who don't follow the rules. Because there's now so much scope in the world for doing that. Um, 
And a few years back, I don't know if you've read Neurotribes. There's a big book called Neurotribes, which is fabulous, and it's looking at autism and all of these um, these different kind of divergences that we're seeing, and firmly believing they're evolutionary. That in actual fact, yep. we're moving towards a space of much greater freedom and creativity, and not following the rules. Um, but equally, we're moving to a space where face-to-face relationships are less required than online relationships, which in some ways is sad, but in other ways is part of the way that our life seems to be the trajectory of our development. I would say, and my 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 mum was uh, from Manchester and she used to say when we grew up, you used to go down to the local pub or the local cafe and you'd all sit there and it was amazing and blah, blah, blah. And you don't do that in these days. I was like, no, I don't. But this was at a time where I was hugely into car audio. I was mm. part of an online community that was mostly UK-based. There were some people around the world, but mostly UK-based. And we used to meet up a couple of times a year. Yeah. And I have a load of connections all around yeah. the UK um, of people where we have chosen to connect. Yes. My mum connected with those people because their parents chose to live in that area and they chose to have children at the same time then you're not really friends with them because you like them you've got things in common you're friends with them because they're the people next to you that's what your school friends are so we've now become globally connected in a way that and and equally i think friendships that used to be reliant on seeing each other regularly i have many many friends online now that i won't speak to for six eight months but then we'll connect and we'll connect for a reason and it'll be straight in there. Yeah. So so the friends I used to talk about car audio with, we're now discussing fireplaces, DIY, children, <laughs> GCS. You're literally, it's just a very, and I, and, but I love the fact that there's still that connection. We like each other. We're interested in each other's lives. Um, and it's fascinating. Whereas, I probably feel that the moment my mum moved away from the area where all these amazing people she connected with, she probably never talked to them ever again. Yeah. So maybe PDA is the is the future. Maybe this um, rule breaking, rule um, ignoring way of living is is the way that our future develops, and and it's where the creative solutions of the future come from because he will do stuff that isn't allowed. This is a thing. It's a it's a regular thing on the podcast where we talk about. On the conformity podcast with Finton, it is the people who follow the rules, who go through that sausage factory and come out the other end, who change the world. Mm, yeah. You look at all the people who are changing the world, Dyson, Elon Musk, they're all neurodiverse, they're all something, they're all yeah. different, and they see the world differently, they access the world differently, they want to make the world better in the way they see makes sense. Mark Zuckerberg made Facebook. It's not necessarily a great thing these days in lots of ways. But it was a massive divergence from where we were. And it has completely changed the rules on everything, Mm. more than I think people still realise now. I agree. The rules have changed at an international level on everything because of Facebook, um, which is amazing and dangerous and scary. Yeah. Um, but as much as I'm not a huge fan of Facebook these days, I'm kind of thankful it's happened. Yeah. 
I'm kind yeah. of thankful that you can now connect with people around the world with the same interests. You can now get out of your little areas uh, echo chamber yep. and actually see what's going on in the world. Um, I'm not going to go down the whole who controls itself, but I like that. Yeah. It's not, and yeah, it's a fascinating thing. And I also love um, the fact that you can hide a lot of things behind text on a screen. Now, some people might go down the scary side. I personally think of you can hide race, gender, um, um, disabilities, anything like that can all be hidden because I can only judge you by what you've written on a screen. Yeah. I can use lots of ways of typing or communicating. Uh, I've got spell checkers. I have so many tools to help me. And the other person just gets to judge me on what I've written, not the way I said it, not the way I entered the room, not the way I look. Yeah. It's a very, very much, it's a level playing field for everyone. Yeah. And I no, love I agree. that. And funnily enough, um, one of the things that Leo is doing, which we've just started seeing flourishing at the moment, is he's writing a story at school. And my first thought was, well, A, it's not written, it's typed. B, your teacher typed it for you because you were talking. And C, you seem to have used some form of either spell checker or word suggester. And my first thought was, oh, well, that's all wrong. You haven't done it yourself. And then I read it and thought, oh, my God, this is just so creative. It's so lovely. And it flows. And it's got when he's found a different word from obviously using some kind of thesaurus, it's the right word and it's more expressive than it would have been if he had used the ones that he could spell. And it's absolutely lovely to see that free flow happening. And it is. You've removed the physical aspect of writing. Yep. You've removed the anxiety around spelling because you've got all these spelling things. Yep. You've got rid of the anxiety of making mistakes. If you put it on paper and you delete something, you have to cross it yep. out or tip X. And then everyone knows you made a mistake. On a computer, you hit delete. Yeah. You copy and move sentences around. But equally, you've got rid of that fear of ownership as well, because one of the joys of, of internet working or of, or of using the tools that the internet provide is that they're collaborative. So if he couldn't come up with a word that was the right word because it wasn't yet in his vocabulary, the vocabulary thing has given him an alternative that somebody else has used at some point, and he's gone, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I want. But we've still got this hang-up that it's, it's, that's not your work. It's not original work. And you're like, who gives a damn? It's creative and it's collaborative and it's brilliant. My nephew has dysgraphia, so giving him a laptop where he could type was a huge mm. barrier removal. But we all have phones. We all have, at the bottom of our keyboard, a little microphone symbol. <laughs> where yeah. if you touch that, you can say what you want to say, <laughs> yeah. and then it will convert it into text. Yeah. That's still writing. And yeah. one of the things we talk about in our assessment is uh, we use the term spontaneous communication and recorded communication. Yep. So I always use Stephen Hawkins as my example because everyone visualizing that knows Stephen Hawkins. He communicated one way. Yeah. But he would have a conversation with you, which was spontaneous, but he would also write books. Same communication means yep. to him. But the intent was different. Yeah. Just because he couldn't hold a pencil doesn't mean he couldn't um, structure a story, couldn't come up with a character Absolutely. or anything. Absolutely. He can do it. 
And that's the thing. When I hear writing, having to be holding a pencil and all of this lot, it's like, no, 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 no. no. Writing is about creating uh, a long-term thing, something which is going to be passed on. Um, So a spontaneous thing, you can be really off the cuff and say it. When you write something, you've got to be really clear, especially when you're writing books and stories. There's a lot of thought which goes in of why are they wearing that? Why are they doing that? Why are they here? What's the reason for that? And if they're doing that as part of their story, but they're just saying it, all the skills are there. Yeah, absolutely. Which is why it drives me more insane that my youngest son is going to be tested on his knowledge of fronted adverbials. And I have no idea what a fronted adverbial is. I'd love to give you an example, but I can't and I don't care. And I can't understand why we are still testing our children on times tables and fronted adverbials and their knowledge of algebra, because none of us do it. None of us. Okay, okay. I occasionally know what a fronted adverbial is when I ask my daughter who went through her SATs. Yeah. I can do past progressive tense. Wonderful. Um, I can only do it because I learned French. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I never learned it in English. I learned it in French. <laughs> Love it. But I do use, as, uh, as certain skills, my daughter was taught. I, I was a very good parent. I went to all the revision <laughs> evenings and learned various Brilliant. things about rearranging sentences. And some of it I have found very useful. Yeah. But a load of it, I couldn't tell you what we, you can literally go, oh, that's a this, yeah. that's a this, that's a this, that's a this. Um, I fronted a verb, I think it's like it's a dented car or something. It's like a something yeah. in front of something which yeah. changes the. Absolutely. I think that is. But you're going to have loads of people write in now and say, oh, no, it's not. It's not that. I still, <laughs> an adjective is a describing word. I'm still not 100% confident on a noun and verb. Adverbs are the ones that get me. Not really sure what the, what adverbs are. <laughs> but, but we tried to. It correct. has had no impact no. on my life. Absolutely. And you've done a PhD, but you don't. How come you want adver- It has no impact, and that's the thing. Is at school you often made for this is the most important thing. If you can't get this, you can't do this. You won't be able to do this. It's like, no, no, no. And interestingly, that's going full circle. That's where the anxiety comes from for Leo, that there's so many rules that he doesn't understand their reason. He doesn't understand their purpose. They don't make sense to him. If they did, he might follow them. But he's blocked by this complete, like, this doesn't make sense, so I'm not doing it. And actually, they sometimes talk about um, PDA in terms of um, in terms of trauma. And the sense that the whole schooling experience for somebody with PDA is actually a trauma experience. And a lot yep. of that anxiety comes from uh, getting into a defensive position, which is caused by the trauma of none of it making sense. Yeah. And when you remove that trauma, they flourish. I, I can completely agree with that. I can imagine from my nephew's experience, who doesn't have PDA, but uh, autism and anxiety and what he's gone through and how he... Um, it is. And when we talk, I did a podcast with Finton about bullies, victims, and bystanders, and how bystanders have the power to change things. Is schools can be a bystander. Yeah, absolutely. So something could be happening. That child is a victim. And in reality, the child by the school seeing this happening and not doing anything is a bystander. And if you, in one of the things, bullying is one of those, you can't sit on the fence, you're either no. for it or against absolutely. it. Absolutely. And if you're watching it from the side and doing nothing, you're kind of for it, whether you like it or not. I actually, with, with Leo's first primary school with the notable headmaster, um, 
I offered to go in and do a talk when I'd written the books on autism and PDA. I offered to go in and do a talk to the kids um, and explain what autism is because they're they're four and five years old. They're, they're in that kind of space of, of being flexible and being open. Let's explain what autism is in really simple terms and let's explain what PDA is and what it might look like and, and how you might handle it. And he said, no, don't be ridiculous. They won't understand anything of that. And he said, you can't, you can't go in and, and teach kids that. And actually, they, why do they need to know that? And I'm like, if there was a blind kid in the class, you would give the other kids a discussion about blindness, what it might look like and how you might be able to help this blind kid who's in your class. Why would you not be wanting to do the same for neurodiversity? Oh, well, it's too complicated. They won't understand it. Then help them, help them understand it and allow them to make their own sense of it. Drove me nuts. What I generally hear when I when I hear things like that is, I don't understand it. Yeah, and I kind of I um one of my um sisters uh, her son's schools which completely failed around autism and we we offered help we did loads of things and we said look what trainers on autism she said well I give them a talk every year my experience I'm like what is your experience <laughs> so it's the same talk every year for yeah. the last ten years. Nothing else added in, no changes. Yeah. And we already can see it's definitely not working, but you're not going to change because yeah. you feel you know everything. We've ticked the box. And it's like, if, well, I, had to, I had a child with autism last year. I'll be fine. <laughs> it's that sort of, no, no. Just, That's like the some um, of my best friends have autism excuse, isn't it? <laughs> I yes. know all about autism. Some of my best friends have autism. You're like, have you seen it? Have you handled it? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm. I'm luckily. I'm lucky. I've. I've not hugely experienced those. Apart as, but I've, I've. I've witnessed them. I've been in a school and witnessed it, and gone. Yeah. I'm very thankful. I'm not involved in that. And I've heard from my sister how things have been, but I'm. I am very fortunate, and I'm very aware when people say, "Oh, I've got autism," and I look at them, and I'm going. Well, they, and then I'm not saying somebody just says it off the cuff. Oh, well, I must be also. Well, that's a bit autistic. It's like yeah, I've had I've had a couple of it of strange experiences in this space. I, I've had um, we had a very uncomfortable experience with social services, who got involved because of some of Leo's behaviour, and when they found out that he had an autism diagnosis with a likelihood of PDA, it was almost as if they dismissed what had happened. It was, that was oh, that explains it. That explains it completely, and we don't need to investigate it any further. And I was like, what? So basically just because, because he, he'd done some report of, of um, having some kind of experience at home that was uncomfortable for him, and they got invest, they sort of piled in with the, oh, my God, we need to rescue this child. As soon as they found out that he had autism, it was like, oh, no, that's fine then. I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. So that dismisses the whole thing because he's likely to have made it up or he's likely to have provoked it or something like that. It was really ridiculous. Um, so that's that's been a, a really kind of negative space. But sometimes you'll get a complete reverse on that where people suddenly assume that because he has autism, they can use the term autism anywhere that they feel like using. And I had literally I had a, a coaching session. I work as a, an executive coach where somebody used the term oh, it's not like I'm autistic or something. And I didn't say anything. It, it was in reference to being unempathetic. I didn't say anything at the time because it was a professional coaching session and I thought this isn't the right moment to do it. But afterwards, I, said, I, I sent an email and said, just so that you're aware, 
autism is not an alternative word for unempathetic. My son is autistic and is in fact hyper empathetic. And, and one of the difficulties he faces is he picks up so much emotional information and can't process it and thinks it must have something to do with him. So it causes him anxiety. So he's a complete barometer for our family emotionally. So, but we use that term, I think he's somewhere on the spectrum to give a sense that they don't get emotions. Yeah, no, it's just very different type of emotion. Yeah. Not- it's interpreting the emotion sometimes, but there's certainly, if, if I am in any way upset, it's my eldest with the autism who is all over me offering me support and can I help and are you okay? So he totally picks up on it. Wow. We've discussed a lot today. We have indeed. We've been round the houses in, in PDA terms. Excellent. I do like doing that because it is, it's exploring that topic. And I love, I love the chance to actually ask questions of what is it like, not from just reading a book where you read PDA is typically blah, 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 blah. Actually, what does it look like in person? What are your yeah. experiences? I find it fascinating. The, the, the richest source of knowledge that I found, and I did think of Harry Thompson's book, it's called The PDA Paradox, and it's a really good starter for exploring that because it's a personal view. Um, but there are loads of PDA Facebook groups, and when you read them, you are instantly immersed in the diversity. The, the, you pick up stuff about a, a lot of PDA kids show a lot more aggression, a lot more violence, a lot more imbalance. Then you get PDA kids who are obsessive. Then you get PDA kids who are really quiet, and you realize the extreme diversity. But what you see more than anything is parents who are desperately struggling to support a child who the very act of supporting them causes them anxiety. So you are in a constant double bind between trying to help and that help causing anxiety. And it's heartbreaking at times that you just don't know what to do. And also, from my experience, is the future. And the future, yeah. You're, You're fighting battles now, but you're also sort of going, what's my battle for next year? What's my battle for the year after? Yeah. And what's he going to be like in 15 years or 20, 30 years when I'm not here to battle? What It's yeah, all those. Absolutely. Really... That's my husband's major concern. And we now have a child who is just about to come up to 12 and somebody is injecting testosterone into the system, which scrambles the whole thing again. So Ooh, that's going to be that's fun. fun. That's going to be fun. Creates even more anxiety because he doesn't understand how his body's working either. <laughs> no, no, no. So. Yeah, it's a whole, whole other ball game. Absolutely, because it's not just his testosterone. Testosterone, you've got to worry about. It's my it. husband's and my youngest son's. <laughs> oh, it's also the <laughs> testosterone of the people he's interacting Absolutely. with, Absolutely. and the impact on him. Absolutely, which is uh, nice. Yeah. So, um, thank you for coming on today. <laughs> no problem. Loved it. I don't know if people are any clearer what PDA is as a result, but <laughs> it's going to make them think. And hopefully we'll get away from, oh, it's just resistive, just doesn't want to do things. Yeah. It's moved on from that. Yeah, quite complicated. So you find me with a couple of useful links, and I'm going to um, try and remember to add that book in you've just mentioned yes. into the links. Yes. Um, and she's also, Rachel's always going to be linked to um, SEN Books, who sell your books. Yes. And I deliberately link you to SEN Books, A, because as you well know, they are brilliant, and B, I have learned it retrospectively that print-on-demand books from Amazon, whilst incredibly convenient, are much lower quality in print um, than the ones that I have from SendBooks. So, so yes, if you haven't heard of SendBooks, it's a small company run by Colin and Rachel. Just Google SendBooks. 
Um, and it is a different Rachel, not this Rachel. <laughs> they are an amazing resource for SEND, and they know a lot about their books and authors. Yeah. So um, I've been great because I've gone up there to them at a show and gone, I'm looking for a book on this. And they've gone, well, there's this one here, which is great, and this one here, but it's great because this one's really good because her, her son's got um, PDA, so she's really lived it. And yeah. all so you literally get a bit of a biography of the author, which really helps you see, actually, they really know what it's on about. And they also give feedback. So it's amazing. So, yeah, really good resource, and it's really good to actually go, I'm looking for a book on dyslexia, what should you, you recommend? And they will give you a complete gamut as well. That's quite a big area of dyslexia. What are you looking And they will be able to really help. So, yeah, SEM books, highly, highly recommend them. They are very, very good. And they're also very helpful when you're trying to self-publish a book because they were really brilliant at helping me through that process as well. Excellent. So there's another tip. Anyone who's trying to write a book, give Colin at SEM Books or Rachel at SEM Books a call. You can find the show notes on our website or you'll find them where you listen to the podcast. Um, thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, please subscribe. You can find uh, links to subscribe across all the different podcast platforms on our website. And if you haven't been to our website, it's www.thesendcast.com. Please follow us on social media. On Twitter, we're at The Sendcast. On Facebook, we are The Sendcast. On Instagram, The Sendcast. And please use social media to share The Sendcast with others. Let others know how amazing my guests are. Uh, and before we go, I'd like to remind you to check out what we do here at B Squared. As well as this podcast, we have our online CPD platform, Training for Education. You'll find a number of our guests, our speakers at our virtual SEND conferences or recorded our own training courses. Training for Education is a great way to get CPD for all staff around SEND that is effective and affordable. Visit www.trainingforeducation.com for more information. And lastly, don't forget our assessment products. This is what B Squared is known for helping schools show the small steps of progress pupils with SEND make. We cover a huge range from early years to post-16, preparing for adulthood and even profiling autism. Visit www.bsquare.co.uk for more information. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.